همبستگی با ادیان با دکتر صادق نمازی خواه دوستان عزیز سلام عرض میکنم امیدوارم سال جدید برای همه شما آغاز شادی سلامت و خورسندی باشه و برای شما و همه عزیزاتون سالی بر از سلامت و سعادت و سرفرازی باشه امروز مهمان عزیزی دارم که باشون برنامه ما شروع میکنم It's my great pleasure to introduce Rabbi Neil Comstaniel Uh, from the Santa Monica Synagogue on California Street and the f- 5th, 10th? N- California and 19th Street. California and 19th Street. I was a bit off. So, Rabbi, uh, Daniel, thank you for coming. I oh, appreciate your presence. A pleasure. You want to talk about your uh, synagogue and what, how long you have been with that synagogue? Well, uh, our synagogue is a reform synagogue, meaning it's um, a member of uh, a, a large number of congregations in the country, 800 congregations. Um, and we are, uh, we have been there for 20, I've been there for 29 years, actually. Oh, you look much younger than that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So when we are talking about the reform Judaism, and I, I was in your Synagogue, I visited several synagogues in L.A. and I had friends from different, uh, I can't say the ideology of the Judaism, but uh, your uh, synagogue was much uh, more liberal and very interesting and people were very relaxed. And can you tell us about the Reform Judaism and where it was started and how it's going to work? Sure. Uh, Reform Judaism actually started... Um, when the Enlightenment came to Germany in about the middle of the 19th century. Um, and so there was, uh, not only amongst Jews, but amongst all religions, there was um, uh, a huge departure from uh, religious philosophy and religious ideology because of the advent of science. And people were beginning to look at things in a much, much different way. Um But uh, Reform Judaism came along and said, no, we can do both. We can really use science on the one hand and our religion on the other hand. And uh, they don't necessarily have to mix, but we can pursue them both and be both um, scientifically aware and spiritually aware at the same time. Uh, it was difficult for the, the German culture to accept another kind of Judaism. And so Reform Judaism didn't, really uh, take off until it came to America. 
And so many Jews came to America um, and uh, began to form uh, these reform congregations, sometimes out of more traditional ones. And it was uh, something that just really could happen here in America because of the separation of church and state, um, that um, uh, it was uh, welcoming, really, of an expansion and even a, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a, a gradual change in Judaism. Okay. And I know that we have uh, two uh two kind of the nationality in Judaism, Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews, and which one are, have more tendency to the reform? Oh, much more Ashkenazi than Sephardic, yes. Um, uh, because of where it started, really, in Western Europe, uh, rather than in any of the Sephardic countries. So, um, which is not to say that people from Sephardic backgrounds don't belong to reform synagogues. They do, and they do to mine. Um, uh, but uh, for the most part, it's people from Ashkenazi background. And uh, when I attended, actually it was a uh, Sabbath I attended in your synagogue. It was very interesting because you were playing guitar and yep. your cantor was a lady mm-hmm. and singing. And it's totally much different than other synagogue that I went. And usually women are uh, acting differently in those synagogues. Well, the reform movement was actually the first movement to officially ordain um, a woman as a rabbi uh, back in the 1970s. Um, and, um, and since then, of course, they have invested cantors as well. Um, so for the reform movement, it's not strange at all. We've been doing it for a long time. And for... Uh, and and as well, well, I should say that when Reform Judaism first began in America, you could hardly tell the difference between a Reform synagogue and a liberal church. Um, and in fact, the services were designed to look like that. They were mostly in English, completely. Um, and the synagogues were designed for two reasons, to look like churches. Um, one, to fit in and copy what churches looked like in America, but also to protect the community. Because if you couldn't tell that it was a synagogue, then it wouldn't be vulnerable to attack. So, um, uh, but the way way the services worked was just like in a church. They were accompanied by an organ and so on and so forth. And uh, through the years, various musical instruments have been used. The Orthodox don't use them because, uh, for two reasons. One... Uh, they don't want to use them until the second temple, like the third temple is rebuilt or the temple is rebuilt uh, for the third time in Jerusalem. And uh, number two, because uh, on the Sabbath you can't work and so you can't fix anything. So if your instrument breaks, you might be tempted to fix it. So they won't use it. So you mean that the music is prohibited in the... Not music. Mm-hmm. It's all vocal music, but but instrumentation is forbidden in an Orthodox setting. It's very similar to the Orthodox Muslim. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. It's very yeah. interesting that... The, oh, we have a lot more in common than that, too. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we uh, were together in two events. One of them was the uh, Jewish-Muslim walk in Iman Center that you were 
one of the people on the panel and the other one was when you invited a group of the non-Jewish clergies from uh, different countries and uh, you were kind enough to invite me to that event and dinner and the uh, program in the synagogue. Well, can you tell us about your experience with the interfaith dialogue and working with other religions? Well, it's interesting that uh, almost at the very beginning, really even before I was ordained as a rabbi, I've been involved in interfaith work. Um, when I was just about to approach my my final year of rabbinical school, there was a, I was in New York, and there was a big event at um, the um, Riverside Church, which is very, very famous for its social activism. And they were hosting or holding a service that would be held interfaith uh, prior to a march to the UN to try and um, end the nuclear arms race, which is very topical today. Yeah. Um, and uh, so a friend of mine said, well, you play, and play guitar and sing. Go sing something Jewish. And I went to this church, and there were like 3,000 people there. They're all Christian or? No, they were from all different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. There was, um, in fact, several tribes of Native Americans were there. It was amazing. Um, So obviously Muslims that were there, Hindus were there, Sikhs were there, uh, etc. But it was really, and every, every, every brand of Christian was there as well. And so um, I sang my Jewish song. Uh, and at one point, we all said together a, a pledge to be peacemakers rather than peacekeepers. And it was one of the most spiritual events in my life. And uh, the other one I had in a mosque, actually. Um, uh, you did the same thing in Iman. I, you played guitar and I played sang. guitar in Iman. Right, I did. And, um, and so then we did this march to the UN and I was singing along and playing along with, uh, people who are training to be, uh, Catholic priests. And, uh, uh, we were having, you know, a very powerful experience. And then I came back to, uh, uh, to Los Angeles to launch my career after I was ordained. And I was invited to, uh, the Episcopal diocese to be with, um, a group of interfaith people who were planning uh, an event that would host Japanese American Japanese uh, who were the victims of the nuclear bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima uh, and the American soldiers who uh, had been in the desert when they tested American uh, nuclear weapons here. Um, And so I haven't stopped since then. Very perfect. It, you know, I find that when I sit at an interfaith table, I'm uh, it. It's a very, very highly a deep spiritual experience, and in addition to that, I come away more Jewish. Uh, not not uh, you know as opposed to anything else, but just feeling uh, bolstered in my own spirituality. Yeah, it's interesting, dear. I know that you know. Uh, Rabbi Sarah Bessin, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, they have the new ground, right? And they found out that the youth that they joined the program, like a Muslim 
and Aziza Hassan from the Muslim group, mm-hmm. uh, they become more uh, interested in their own religion. Right. And there is not, you know, adverse effect on their faith or anything mm-hmm. when the interfaith happens. And the same thing, it happened, you know, when we I started the Interfaith Festival of Unity at Iman, and you're going to be there next this year, hopefully. hope so. And uh, I think that I had more interest about the communication with the other group, as well as being more guardian for their own faith. And this is for the people who think that if they get together with the other religion, they might lose their religion, or the youth might, you know, skip from their own faith. That never happens. No, people, you know, uh, look, first of all, if it did happen, you know, hopefully it would be sincere and positive and that would be okay. And yet, on the other hand, um, I've seen the same effect every single time that I've done anything like this. Uh, you know, especially young people are so proud to articulate their own faith in their own spirituality. It's, it's, it's really an amazing thing. And across the board, it makes them all feel more American as well, because really this is the only place where you can have a, a completely open sharing like that. You know, last one we had the uh, program with Rabbi uh, Haim Beliak and mm-hmm. Father Alexis Smith and Salam al Miryati. Three of them were here. And there was one common uh, thing that they were concerned about it, and that is the, the youth and younger generation are not that much interested in the religion, and they are not very active in participating in the churches, synagogue, or mosque. How do you explain that? I, I, I explain it, um, well, first of all, I think that, one of the things that I have experienced with people in that age group is that the the structure of uh, a synagogue, a church, or a mosque, of a congregation, of a of a regular group of people gathering in a a place like that um, doesn't feel as open and warm and embracing to them as being in somebody's living room. Or being uh, on a hike, uh, in you know, in uh, along the beach, or or you know, overlooking the beach, or or whatever. Or internet. <laughs> or, or, well, the internet is as well too. Although I think that that people do crave, and I've experienced this with younger people too, uh, that they crave really a um, uh, that that one-on-one closeness with somebody else where they really can embrace, literally physically embrace somebody else and they can be embraced by them. So I I think that's what they're looking for, but they don't want it formalized. And they want to very freely have their own input um, and put their own twist on things and tweak things um, in a way that works for them. So I think that we in America are looking at a transitional period. We really are. We're really looking at some uh, uh, extended period, I think, of uh, people from all backgrounds um, very intently 
looking to mold and evolve their spirituality so that it comes out um, with something that that supports those feelings in them rather than turns them away. They don't like the older music. They don't like the older liturgy. Um, uh, you know, sometimes when they find out certain things, well, one of, this is one of the things I found in interfaith work is that we all have words that we share with each other, uh, that we share when we're um, alone, when Muslims are alone, when Jews are alone, when Christians are alone. And as soon as you put other people in the mix, they don't work. That's and, true. Right? They don't work because they're actually antagonistic to somebody else. And so I think that, that um, uh, those kinds of phrases uh, turn people off, uh, the younger people. Um, they don't want to be angry. They don't want to be hateful. They just want to be uh, open with their spirituality. You know, is there any different level of the Reform Judaism when you go to different synagogues? Or Oh, every Reform synagogue is different. That's for sure. Um, uh, there is a a reform liturgy. There is a reform prayer book uh, that uh, is officially put out by the reform movement, and uh, many synagogues have created their own prayer book uh, with, uh, like you know, like I did, and uh, you know, we have trans transliterations of the prayers that I authored rather than uh, ones that are standard because. Um, I'm I'm looking for uh, a, uh, a broader spectrum theology uh, in my prayer book than I think is offered in the one that comes from the official movement. Who is making the policy of the synagogues? Is it the rabbi, or there is a you know board of trustee or director? Because I I worked with a reform rabbi who was in the one of the synagogue. When we talked together about the interfaith marriage, he said he will never accept to conduct interfaith marriage. But when he left the synagogue, he said he will do it. It doesn't make any difference for him. Who, who makes those decisions? Well, there's actually two major bodies uh, within the reform movement that uh, do that decision-making. And, of course, then you go locally to the synagogue itself, and there is a board of directors and of course, the board of directors and the rabbi interface with one another and and make certain arrangements and agreements. So, um, uh, the number of reform or the percentage of reform rabbis who will officiate at um, either a an interfaith or a mixed background uh, wedding, which I, I think there's a difference, and I'll explain that in a second, um, uh, is about fifty percent. And each rabbi is given permission by the Central Conference of American Rabbis, which is our rabbinic organization, to make our own decision. So each rabbi uh, will do that or not do that, depending on their own decision. Sometimes the board of the congregation has an opinion also and says they will allow it or not allow it. Um, And so the rabbi that they hire has to be comfortable with that. Thank you. Let's uh, take a break for the commercials and we will be back. Okay. K-I-R-N. 670 AM. Radio Iran. Radio Iran. 
همبستگی با ادیان با دکتر صادق نمازی خواه Again, thank you, Rabbi. Comes Daniel, and I think that I always enjoyed coming, you know, talking to you whenever we get together. The question that I have right now on the practicing religion or on commandment and all of those things. What's the difference between the reform and Orthodox Judaism? It's a good question. First of all, I think you need to see uh, Judaism as a very wide spectrum. Um, and uh, to recognize that, that we all have the same law, we just respond to it differently. So, uh, for instance, uh, the, the Sabbath, Shabbat. Um, we are told not to do any work on Shabbat. The way the Orthodox uh, determine what the categories of work are, there's 39 official categories of work that were defined um, because the, the Torah itself does not define what work is. But the rabbis did in the Talmud. They looked at, at the, the building of the temple in Jerusalem and they isolated 39 different categories of work, um, carrying things from a private place to a public place or carrying things or walking a long distance, uh, cutting things, exchanging money for, you know, uh, uh, purchasing and so on and so forth. Um, all of those things are, are not to be done on Shabbat if you're an Orthodox Jew. As a Reformed Jew... In 2020, I have uh, a different idea of what work is sometimes. Um, I'll give you an example. If, if Let's say somebody works in Century City, um, and they live in, they work in an office building where the air gets pumped in and they can't open the windows, and they have piped-in music and so on and so forth, and they can't wait to get out maybe and go sailing. Um, uh, so on Shabbat, they could go sailing, but there's so many things that, uh, are involved with sailing that would be forbidden from an Orthodox point of view that they would never do it. Um, from a reform point of view, I think that person could go out and go sailing. On the other hand, let's say that somebody is a professional sailor all week long. He may want to go in the opposite direction and go to Century City and go shopping, um, uh, which he never has a chance to do during the week. So, you know, I would I would say that 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 work and rest. I think certainly at this stage in our um, uh, infrastructure um, and the the reality of of our technology, um, that uh, giving our phones a rest and our computers a rest on Shabbat would be a wonderful thing that we could all do. Obviously not something that was anticipated by the rabbis. Um, uh, but uh, uh, besides that it involves electricity, um, which uh, Orthodox Jews will stay away from using uh, on Shabbat. Um, uh, besides that, it is, that's how we work now. And if we, if we take a break from that, if we pause from that, if we take a, uh, uh, an internet Shabbat would be terrific. 
So what the, uh, you didn't have any problem in your synagogue on the Shabbat to have the lights on and everything. Mm-mm. But of course, if you walked into an Orthodox synagogue, the lights would be on too, except they would be left on from the night before. They wouldn't have been turned off. So the turning off is a problem, not being off. Turning off and then turning them back on. Right? You can't initiate a fire on Shabbat, and electricity is considered to be contemporary fire. So if you talk about the ultra-ultra-Orthodox, is that practical to leave it on, to leave the lights on? They do. I mean, is is it practical? I mean, it's not great for the environment, um, and I think that that's something that needs to be taken into consideration as well. Um, uh, it... Uh, you know, depending upon where you are, if you have another room in your home, you know, that's dark so you can go to sleep, I think that that's a good thing. Otherwise, it will interfere with sleep, and that's not good for your health either. So I think that the reform attitude is is that Shabbat should be a blessing, Shabbat should be in, uh, enjoyable, and Shabbat shouldn't be a burden, because if it becomes a burden, then you don't want to do it. Um, the The initial idea was that Shabbat would be liberating. It would be liberating. It would take you away from uh, your work day week and give you a whole chance to, I mean, there's this wonderful phrase um, in the Torah uh, that we, you know, say on, on Friday night that uh, when the work of creation was finished, um, uh, it, Referring to God, it says Shabbat Vayinafash, that God, you can hear the word Shabbat right in that as a verb, that God Shabbated, Shabbat Vayinafash, um, uh, uh, and Nefesh is the word for soul, so that the, the rest is all the way down to your soul, um, that, you're, that, 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 that the soul of the universe was refreshed. Um, that's the kind of... Um, Day it should be. It should be a, a day of soul relaxation, um, so that you can go back into the the new week with a a, a good, focused, um, wonderful attitude that uh, takes the lessons that you learned from that rest right into the week. So when you talk about all of these differences, is how the Orthodox Jews look at the reforms. Um, well, they look at, it depends who you're talking to. Um, uh, I think some of them look at us, you know, like puppies when they tilt their head to the side like that, um, when they're not sure about something, um, they're really not sure. Some of them, uh, uh, don't consider us to be Jewish because they think that we've gone too far. Um, uh, but others we work with in concert and, you know, work with in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, healing things in society and so on and so forth. You'll find that, that you know, Jews of every ilk, um, you know, feel that we're mandated to take care of things that are going wrong in society. Now, do the or- does the Orthodox community have a different take on what those things are than I do? Sometimes, yes. And and we have things in common. So, um, but I I would I, I've experienced uh, all kinds of 
uh, orthodox attitudes towards Reform Judaism. Where uh, the Kabbalah fits into these two groups? In between. Um, Kabbalah's Jewish mysticism, which in some ways is as old as Judaism itself, in some ways. Um, uh, in other ways, it's, you know, it's more uh, something out of um, the Middle Ages. And, um, and it, it, it is you know, the realm of Jewish mysticism. It is not a religion unto itself, which is sometimes how it's presented. Like the Sufis in Islam? Like Sufism in Islam, right? Uh, my understanding is that, you know, are, are, are Sufis separate from? No, different. We have two different kinds of the Sufis. Right. So, uh, you know, we have all kinds of mystics. Because uh, we're Jewish, so there's not going to yeah, be one dif- or two countries. The different kind of the Sufis have different philosophies. Some of them are the main line, and some of them are the extremely separate group, and some of them are in the middle. Okay. It's, well, uh, I mean, I think it, you know, I think that 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 you know, Kabbalah is similar to that. Although I think the problem is when some people present it as something completely separate, and it's not. It's grounded in being Jewish. Um, it's grounded in in Jewish texts and in Jewish values and so on and so forth and and um, so you know you're not you're not allowed to study Kabbalah um, uh, until you're forty years old um, and are married and have a child I think a child of each gender um, and then you can study right the idea being is that you have to be completely set in your life so that the, the Kabbalah doesn't take you away um, and that, that it keeps you in this world and working on very worldly things. So I think that, that it's important to, to understand it um, uh, as something that certainly people delve into. The Kabbalah that I've studied, I love. I love. Does it make me a Kabbalist? I don't think so. Uh, uh, does it make me appreciate Kabbalah and some of the insights? Yes. Um, do I find, for me, that sometimes uh, the, the Kabbalistic world circles in on itself and, you know, after a while can't think out of a certain parameter? Yeah, and that's difficult for me. That's, too, you know, that, that's not who I am um, in many ways. Do they have this, like, it? Leader controlling the group like a cult? Do you consider a cult? No, it's not a cult. Not a cult. Uh, no. Uh, there are teachers, there are rabbis, rabbis and non-rabbis who teach Kabbalah. Uh, and um, uh, they certainly have their followers, right? Um, I don't think that any of them are cult-like in that regard. It's not, it's not like... Uh, um, you know, some of the cults that, that were extant um, in the 80s and 90s, um, and it's not like Scientology or something like that. It's not insulated in that way. So change the subject, let's talk about the the philosophy of the kosher. Is the, what kosher, what things kosher apply to? Okay, well, first I have a story. So... Um, 
uh, right inside the Damascus Damascus Gate in East Jerusalem, there is um, a pita factory. And you can go to this pita factory with a little bag of vegetables, right? Um, and they will make what they call for you uh, a pizza. And so they will take pita dough, but they'll smash it down, smoosh mm. it down so that it doesn't rise. Um, and they'll put some oil on it and they'll put some eggs on it and they'll put some of those little cheese wedges with aluminum foil on them. They'll put that and some spices and then they'll put your vegetables on, throw it in this oven that must be a hundred million years old. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, uh, and then it comes out and it's this marvelous thing, right? So I was watching, um, uh, a Muslim gentleman, uh, Palestinian making a pizza for somebody and he broke an egg and the egg had a blood spot on it and he immediately threw it away, away, which is exactly what we would do. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the similarities between the philosophy of keeping kosher and halal is very, very similar, right? Um, it, 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 it's pretty much that it is a, that, uh, when you slaughter an animal, uh, it, it, it's a sad occasion. Um, and we're grateful for it so that because it keeps us alive. Um, and of course there's spiritual intent and there are blessings that are said. Um, and then the, the meat can only be prepared. First of all, the, the animal has to be slaughtered in, in, in a way that hopefully causes it the least amount of pain possible. Um, I'm not as familiar with a halal uh, uh, technique, Same thing, yeah. you know, but pretty much cutting the jugular vein so yeah. that the, the blood drains out uh, as quickly as possible. Um, and uh, so, and, and then uh, going from an earlier citation in the Torah, which says that, well, you know, in, in Hebrew, I'm not sure again how this is in Arabic, but um, in Hebrew, the word for, or, or even in Farsi, it may be, you know, a Farsi thing as well, because all those languages, you know, kind of layered on each other. Um, the word for blood is dam, the word for human being is adam, and the word for earth is adama. And so they're all linked together. Um, so, uh, uh, after the story of Noah, uh, or Noah, as he's called in the Torah, um, after that flood, uh, the idea was that there was that murder was rampant in the world, and that's why um, God caused the flood. Um, and so uh, the idea was that we could eat meat at that point, um, but uh, and hopefully it would assuage us from killing each other, um, but the blood of the animal had to go back into the ground. So where did it has to go back where? Into the ground, into the earth. Yeah. So the 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 dam goes back into the Adama, which is its source and where it belongs. That being said, and that that's why kosher meat is very dry, because as much of that body fluid from the animal is Same out. thing with blood. Right? So there you go. So um, now the additions that we have are um, from a, a, a law that says you can't boil a kid in its mother's milk. 
which was a very common ancient sacrifice to take milk from the mother, boil it and take the calf. And yeah. Yeah. And so we don't do that. Um, uh, specifically, we're not allowed to eat fish that don't have fins and don't have scales. Same thing. In the yeah. Okay. So there you go. I mean, it's, it's, so is that only applies to the eggs and uh, meat or, Kosher applies to the other things too. Other things in life? I mean, the, other things uh, other, that you use. Uh, other foods that we use. Um, mostly it, it, it applies to the animals that we eat, fish that we eat, the birds that we eat. Um, it does not apply to any kind of vegetables or anything like that. They're all considered to be neutral, parv. Um, and so, you know, that, uh, now, on the other hand, you do need to look carefully if if you really do keep strictly kosher and say, well, if I'm having steak that's kosher and a baked potato with butter on it, I can't do the same the two at the same time. Because the dairy product, the dairy product and the meat, meat, you can't do together, right? Goes back to the same philosophy that you cannot cook the cow in the milk. Right. Although, I mean, I, you know, to my mind, that um, uh, law is about much more than that. I mean, I quoted it in a sermon. There's this three laws I quoted together that you can't see the calf in its mother's milk, that if you're going to make a sacrifice, which is how people prayed in the ancient world, you can't kill the mother and the calf on the same day. Um, and the third one is, is that if you want to go get eggs from a nest, you have to chase the mother bird away, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, and uh, I equated that with what's going on down at the border with uh, children being yeah. you know, taken from their parents. That this is not, it's not about how you eat or how you make sacrifices. It's about being a kind person. It's about being a person with conscious, consciousness um, and a... Uh, 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 a mindfulness about other human beings and considering them the same as you. Um, so, um, and so let's say you eat that way, but you act the other way, then as far as I'm concerned, you're not keeping kosher. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Cause you, you could have the cleanest kosher kitchen in the world, but if you're treating, if you're also part of the border patrol and taking people, taking kids out of their parents' arms, then what's the point? You haven't learned anything from that law. So when you're talking about the Noah's flood, because people were killing each other, I think that in this case, if God forbid we have something like Noah's flood, these atomic bombs. Right. Right. Fortunately, we are going to that direction. Because all of these atomic bombs that being built, and if they don't want to use it, why are they building it? Well, you know, I'm old enough to remember growing up in the um, the midst of the nuclear arms race. And during that time, there was something called mad, mutually assured destruction between the United States and the Soviet Union. That they had so many weapons that they could destroy the world several times over, and so did we. Um, and so mutually assured destruction was supposedly keeping us safe. Um, which to my mind meant that there was a nuclear device around my son's neck and there was a nuclear device around the 
the, the, the neck of some child in, the, in what was then the Soviet Union. Um, and I had the button for that, for the child in the Soviet Union. And the Russian person, the Russian father had the, the button for mine, right? And that was supposed to make me feel good and safe and calm. Um, every time I think about it, it makes me more and more anxious. So, um, uh, no, I, th- I think, you know, the way to really solve the, the nuclear polar, polar proliferation issue um, uh, is for us to disassemble these weapons. Thank you very much, Rabbi Daniel. That was uh, very kind of you to come all the way from Santa Monica to here oh, that's to okay. join me in this program, and I appreciate that. I'm sure that we will have a lot to do together in the interface. I look forward to it. You know, services, and it's very... It's an honor and pleasure to call you a friend, and I hope to have the same situation with you. Thank you for coming. Appreciate that. خیلی ممنون. انشالله در ماه دیگه اولین دوشنبه در خدمت شما هستیم.